Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode I'm joined by Amira El-Gawabi to discuss hate in Canada, Islamophobia in particular, and what additional action our federal government should pursue. The most recent numbers for StatsCan tell us that there has been a rise in hate crimes in our country, and the Institute for Strategic Dialogue has highlighted the particular threat posed by online right-wing extremism. Now, I reached out to Amira after I'd read a column of hers in the Toronto Star, and because I knew of her work as one of seven commissioners who worked for the Canadian Commission for Democratic Expression, focused on this question of online hate and harm, and how we can better regulate online platforms to address hate speech while respecting freedom of expression. In addition to that work, Amira is a journalist, columnist, human rights advocate, and board member of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. She also works for the Canadian Labour Congress, having worked in the past for the National Council of Canadian Muslims. We recorded this conversation two weeks ago now, in the wake of the horrific and hate-motivated murder of the Afsal family in London, Ontario, but with the end of the parliamentary session, I'm a bit behind on posting it. In some ways, that timing turned out to be fortuitous, as our government has only recently tabled Bill C-36, an act to address online hate through a return to a civil remedy via the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, an idea that Amira actually raises in the course of our conversation. This legislation builds on some other significant steps we've taken to date, from restoring the anti-racism directorate, to new funding through Heritage Canada to address racism, to adding white nationalist groups to the terror list, and more. That said, there is no question that much work remains, and Amira is at the forefront of calling for that action. As she wrote in the Star, In honor of the Afsal family and the little boy left behind, let us recommit to making Canada a safer place for him and for all of us by taking concrete action now. Amira, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Nathaniel. You have been writing, thinking, and working to combat hate for some time now, and Canadians are really paying attention, obviously, in the wake of the murder and violence and attack in London, and the outpouring of not only support, but also this call for action. And you've written in March to say lawmakers must urgently introduce new laws. You most recently have written in the last week to say what is urgently required is a comprehensive action plan. Obviously, based on your writing, we're not doing enough, but are there some positive steps you would point to and and some spaces you would point to to say, we absolutely need action on this and we haven't seen action today? So when it comes to addressing hate in Canada, many of us who are sort of in these spaces have known for a long time, even before the massacre in Quebec City, before this mass murder in London, Uh, before other acts of violence that we've seen in harassment, that there is a problem in this country. And, you know, it isn't only the fact that we're seeing police reported hate crimes generally going up, because even that's not the best measure to tell us what's going on. In fact, according to Statistics Canada, up to two thirds of hate crimes are not reported. While that's as of 2014, the last time that we received uh, information from what's called the General Social Survey, which has a portion on victimization and people's perceptions of their victimization. So that's 300,000 cases, potential hate crimes that don't make it to the radar. And that's 2014. And we know that since then, hate groups in this country continue to organize, that the activities online spilling over into real life are real concerns. We also know that um, 
the, for instance, the Quebec City Mosque massacre was committed by an individual who was consuming hate online, who was radicalized that way. We later saw, even though it wasn't here in Canada, but what happened in Christchurch, New Zealand as well, where the murderer, he live streamed that attack on online. Uh, so we know that the online space is one area that's very concerning, that is potentially sort of feeding into what we're seeing in the real world. And while we don't know exactly what evidence police have when it comes to the latest sort of atrocity, this mass murder of this beautiful family uh, in London, Ontario, the Asphalt family, what we can say is that there is a climate. There is a climate in this country that is deeply disturbing. That does not say that all Canadians are racist, but, you know, sometimes I I sort of see comments of defensive comments from folks saying, you know what, you know, we're not racist, or why do we have to take the blame of whatever happened, whether it's talking about this type of hate that we're seeing, or even just the horrible uh, revelations from uh, Kamloops with the 215 Indigenous children, like, all of these are connected in the sense of the dehumanization of communities and the dehumanization that we've seen of Indigenous communities, of Black communities, of Muslim communities, of Jewish communities. The list sadly goes on of Asian Canadians throughout this pandemic. And the the sort of where it all kind of centers on now, one of the, the greatest areas of work is the online space. And so that's why we have continuously called on the federal government to table its legislation on this, to hold social media platforms accountable, because at the moment, it's a little bit like a Wild West out there. And we keep being told, the social media platforms keep saying, well, we're going to deal with it. But at the end of the day, they don't have the real imperative to act. They're commercial entities, and yet they're cre- they're providing a public square. And that public square is, is increasingly dangerous for racialized people who are the most often exposed to hateful ideas and commentary. At the federal level, since I've been doing this since 2015, we've seen some really positive action in the sense of restoring the anti-racism directorate and creating this national strategy. I, I was at a virtual event recently with a local Bangladeshi organization that is really involved in the community. And they have something called the Peacemaker Initiative, and that it's funded by Heritage Canada. So there are these grants specifically focused on tackling racism and hate. And the Peacemaker Initiative basically focuses on Islamophobia and calling out Islamophobia and educating young Canadians in particular, it does seem to me there there has been a lot of good work on the one hand. And then when you describe the online space, there certainly hasn't been the urgent movement that is required to meet the moment. And I would have said to meet the moment of a number of years ago, because you just talked about the, the mosque attack and the Christchurch calls. I want to get to the online hate conversation, but before we get there, are there other things in the federal sphere that you think should be a real priority as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the point that you make about the progress that has happened is well taken. There absolutely has been progress. I mean, the fact that the current government has been speaking about anti-Black racism, Islamophobia, all these forms of discrimination where previous governments not only didn't talk about it, but actually were, I would say, putting out very negative narratives, particularly about Canadian Muslims. I mean, we had a previous prime minister say that the greatest threat to Canada was, quote unquote, Islamicism, which is not even a word, but we all know what he meant. And basically, it was like putting a target on the backs of Canadian Muslims who were already dealing with guilt by association 
investigation every time a terrorist attack so-called by Muslims was committed. We were already having to address that. And all of a sudden, we found, you know, women's choice of wearing a niqab being questioned at the highest offices of the land. We saw uh, all of, you know, the Barbaric Cultural Practices Act. We saw all of these specific policies, not just the conservatives. We also had after 9-11, even with the liberal liberals at that time, we had anti-terrorism legislation that really did risk civil liberties and did create over surveillance of our communities. There's no doubt about it. And all of these are connected because when we constantly see the focus on our communities in this very negative way that it creates in the public mind that we're almost deserving of the Islamophobia that we experience, of the discrimination that we experience, that there is something wrong with our communities when in fact, you know, it couldn't be further from the truth, just like all other communities. And, and no one has to defend themselves in this way, but just to say Canadian Muslims are part and parcel of this country and of its success. And so we constantly found ourselves on the defensive for years throughout that time. And then even when we saw with the Quebec mosque massacre, within a few weeks, the whole idea of addressing Islamophobia was politicized. And we saw like the leadership race for the Conservative Party, where someone like Kelly Leach, you know, was putting out information showing a woman with tape duct across her face with M103 on it, fueling the idea that Muslims are trying to shut down speech and bring in Sharia law. And all of that again, really helped almost, you know, sadly nurture this anti-Muslim movements in in our country so that you had these anti-Muslim rallies popping up all around the country. You had, you know, the threats made against MP Iqra Khalid, who had presented M103, which was simply a motion to condemn Islamophobia and look at religious discrimination and think of ways to solve it. So that politicization that we've seen um, has been problematic. And so coming back to your question, the fact that now we seem to have gone a bit beyond that, thankfully, and it took four years to get the government to, for instance, designate January 29th as a national day of remembrance of the Quebec mosque attack and action on Islamophobia for years because that's how long it took to really build consensus around using the term Islamophobia because it had been weaponized and there were politicians who were refusing to acknowledge that it was the term that we needed to use that as victims of Islamophobia, the community saying this is what we're experiencing, this is how we name it and being denied the right to name what we're experiencing happening. So finally, we sort of overcame that barrier, which seems like such a basic, it just seems like such a basic thing to be able to do. That took up a lot of our efforts. And so that was positive. And then again, addressing white supremacist groups. And it's, again, all of it's interconnected in the sense of, as I said earlier, the over surveillance of Muslim communities came at the expense of not surveilling the growth of white supremacist groups and hate groups in this country. And so after the Quebec mosque massacre, it was after that that CSIS reopened, you know, its desk looking at white supremacist movements in this country that they had thought, oh, nothing's going on here, nothing to see here, even though we had lots of evidence that there was something going on and that experts had been ringing alarm bells for quite some time even before that. There's so much there. You know, when you spoke of the government response and the anti-terror, the overreaching anti-terror response in the wake of 9-11, I was in high school at the time and one of my best friends was Venezuelan, but his mom was fearful on his behalf, saying, you look Arab. There was that much fear across the community. And and my friend lived in in Crescent Town here in the East End. And 
large Muslim population. And so they could feel it and they could see it. And just by virtue of looking similar, obviously, if then you are actually Muslim, it, it, it goes even further. And, and I mean, when you look at my own political experience, because that was when I was in high school, but I've seen C-51, which is a similar experience, which was anti-terror legislation. But who was the, the group that this was in response to? I mean, it was, again, be fearful of Muslims. And we saw the barbaric cultural practices. We saw the banning of uh, the niqab, as you say. And I seconded M103 and Ikra's a friend. And I, again, I, I shook my head to say, why is this controversial at all? I, I mean, I'm not a religious person. You can criticize religions, but you don't hate the people just by virtue of because they practice those religions. And you, you certainly don't hate them because of who they are. And the idea that we couldn't condemn Islamophobia left me shaking my head. But it's also you saw the global compact on migration. I mean, you run down the list of issues that should be no brainer policies in support of equality. And they become, as you say, politicized in a really negative way. And we shouldn't underestimate the impact that that has, I don't think, because when you look at a different example of vaccines, and I wonder what you think about this. So in the United States, I have family in Michigan, and vaccine rollout has been a real challenge because there's a lot more vaccine hesitancy and their political leaders are not united, that there are some Republicans and some leadership and some individuals in the Republican Party who spread misinformation and spread fear around vaccines and dismiss the reality of COVID. In Canada, we've been lucky because our conservatives, you can complain about certain rollout and certain responses as far as public health and the evidence goes, but overwhelmingly, there's been a consistent message across political leaders, across parties to say, get your vaccine. The first vaccine is the best one. They're safe. They're effective. Go get vaccinated. We're all getting vaccinated. And if we had that same unanimity and unity across political leadership to say, we're going to condemn Islamophobia, we are all equal, we're going to lift people up and we're going to go after those who are spreading hate, I don't think we would have seen this conversation at the national level go sideways the way, the way it has. And I hope, because Aaron O'Toole now is condemning Islamophobia and others are, I hope we're past that. I mean, I, I hope so too. And I think what's important to realize is that the legacy of those narratives against our communities continue to have impact even within our policy framework. So actually, just last week, sort of lost a little bit in all of the news, but there was a report by the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group where they looked at the Canadian Revenue Agency and how it was actually and has been targeting Muslim charities for audits and revocation. And all of that comes out from, again, the targeting of Muslim charities after 9-11. And so that type of consistent surveillance and almost punishment, a collective punishment of charitable organizations continues to this day and is still a problem. So part of addressing Islamophobia, just as addressing any type of systemic racism, is to go into our institutions and really examine and understand how are they set up and listen to voices of community to say, you know, this is how we are experiencing these policies. And part of what I would hope the anti-racism directorate, which you know was established recently in the federal government, is to do that type of work. It's not just to convene meetings where we all feel good because we've said the right thing and we've all heard the right thing from each other, but it's actually do the real work of having to go back 
into these departments that have sort of a historic legacy of work that's been done by bureaucrats and it's really hard to move bureaucracy. And, you know, you have to say, you know what, some of the policies that we have need to be completely rewritten because of the way that they have, you know, targeted or harmed various communities. And this is one example with the CRA, for instance, and it's not just the ICLMG has raised that, NCCM has raised that as well, the National Council of Gay Muslims. That's a very easy example to say Islamophobia can be embedded within our institutions, and we have to figure out how to address that. And the other thing, by the way, with the anti-racism directorate, one of the biggest concerns for community advocates and organizations is that these important initiatives that are brought into effect, you know, ideally they should be legislated. They should be legislated to make it that much harder whenever there's a change in government, if there is a change from one party to the other, that they're not easily dismantled because it is like a punch in the gut every time, you know, you take a few steps forward and then a new government comes in and it removes all of that. And even we've seen that in the Ontario government where we had a, a you know pretty robust anti-racism directorate set up that was looking at anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-Black racism, all these different for anti-Indigenous racism, looking all of this, really convening the work and the government comes in, they weren't able to dismantle it because it was legislated. They have severely curtailed its impact. But imagine now the anti-racism director at the federal level is not entrenched in legislation and it should be. We've seen it even in other contexts around the court challenges program, around yes. the law commission, We've seen institutions that are easy to defund, and then we come in and we try to refund them, but time elapses in between, resources are lost, capacity is lost, and obviously the good work is lost along the way in the interim. So it's a good point about entrenching it to ensure that it is not immune, because obviously majority governments can undo it all the same, but but it is much harder to undo it entirely. When you talk about the need for outcomes-based policies, and you look at the CRA example is an interesting one. I was unaware of it, but you would look at the outcome to say there's a disproportionate number of charities being targeted from this community. And then you work backwards to say, why is that? What's the rationale that CRA is putting forward? And, and how can we address this to make sure there is better equality? And it reminds me in, in the criminal justice context, when we see disproportionate outcomes for Black and Indigenous Canadians in our prisons, you work backwards to say, why is this the case? And one example being our racist and unjust drug laws. Well, let's address those. Another example being the mandatory minimum sentences and a lack of conditional sentencing. Let's address those. So I think it's really important to, as you say, look at outcomes. At the same time, we do need to convene these forums at times. One of the action items that is being called for is, is a forum for words. And it seems like one of those non-controversial, of course, we should convene this and, and make sure this moment occurs. There has been, I think even you've written to say it shouldn't only be focused on Islamophobia. Take a step back. We've seen anti-Semitism. We've seen anti-Asian hate. We obviously know that there are disproportionate negative outcomes in our policies for Black and Indigenous Canadians in a serious way. So Let's convene a forum, yes, but let's make it more holistic. There is going to be a national a summit on Islamophobia. There's also going to be a national summit on anti-Semitism. So, okay, so that's happening. Great. I understand that these types of racism and discrimination, they're 
they're all coming from the same type of poison, right? It's all about the dehumanization, otherization of people. And so that that is across the board. It's not only the Jewish community or the Muslim community, it's many other communities as we've just been talking about. And so what I was advocating for in my recent piece in the star was to say, you know, let's have a very fulsome examination of the rise of hate in Canada and the response to hate. And the general antidote is going to help everyone. So just like you've really laid out very well, it is looking at outcomes and the different types of outcomes for different communities all kind of lead back to the same thing is, is examining policies, practices for the bias, for the way in which the negative impacts are happening on communities and figuring out, okay, so how do we undo that? Or how do we find new ways of doing things to ensure that people are not being marginalized? And so the idea of having a broader umbrella, I, al- I also really felt that this was, a, this was a moment of bringing communities together. I'm very sensitive to the idea that in the public mind, you know, when we're talking about one phenomenon like Islamophobia, I, you know, I've heard, I've been on shows where callers are calling in and they're like, well, why are we focusing on Muslims? Or why are we focusing on Black people or Asian people? But when you say, whoa, like, hold up, it's all of these communities, all of these various diverse communities in our country are experiencing very similar phenomenon here. They're experiencing discrimination, they're experiencing hate, they're experiencing bias in the systems. And so it's not just one group that's having all the problems because even when you're talking about the challenges you're facing and again in the public's mind it's like you're a problem there's something wrong with you that's really how it's it's interpreted and so i really feel from a strategic communications point of view for our communities to say you know it's not just about us it's about many many communities and all of us you know there's like a big tent approach let's all come in here and yes we can parse it out specifically around the ways that different communities are experiencing things, as you talked about, like the overrepresentation of Black and Indigenous folks within our prisons and whatnot, or in, in foster care or all of these different spaces. Yes, we can talk about, and we should have specific spaces to examine the ways in which Islamophobia, anti-Black racism, all of these things are manifesting, but within a broader, a broader tent, a broader theme to say that by ourselves, there's small slices of the population, but grouped together, we're talking about millions of people in our country, right? So it's all of a sudden, it's not just one communities as a problem that, oh no, we have to appease them and figure out how to appease them. But it's like, no, these are systemic issues holding many people back from fully participating in society. I like that idea of this overarching approach to say we're focused on hate and discrimination, and we're focused on lifting up a conversation around basic equality and dignity. But there are specific instances where different communities are affected differently, and prisons and child welfare being one case, say, for Indigenous communities, there are considerations around poverty that that impacts certain communities over others, and, and that leads to 
worse outcomes, quite obviously, as, as a major social determinant of health. But then there are also your CRA example being one, but there are also different communities of newcomers that are facing discrimination because they are newcomers and they don't speak the same language and they look different and they have different customs and cultures and, and, and the work experience that they bring is not fully recognized. And there are all sorts of different considerations that play into the different outcomes that different communities face, but the overarching focus being equality. Now, when you look at discrimination writ large and hate writ large in this broader conversation, in some ways that does take us back to addressing online hate, because while many different communities face different outcomes in different ways, they all face this kind of hate online in a very similar way. And you have a very unique vantage point from what I can tell, where you not only have been involved in calling for action for a long time and working and writing in your professional life, but you also were a commissioner for the Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression. Walk me through what exactly that is for those who are unaware, but also what the ultimate calls to action for the government are in relation to this duty on platforms to act responsibly. So the commission was brought together by the Public Policy Forum, and it you know it did have funding from uh, Heritage to examine the issue of online hate. Basically, it you know it had a group of commissioners, amongst them you know people like former Supreme Court Justice Beverly McLaughlin, Jamil Jaffer out of the U.S., uh, who's a civil liberties expert, um, you know Jean Leroy, who's a Indigenous from media background, you know several really amazing thinkers who have you know Adam Duddick of the University of Ottawa. You know, of course, it was convened before the pandemic. We were supposed to be meeting regularly, but we did do all that online, like everyone. And there was also a citizens assembly happening at the same time. And that was a really interesting process with creating a bit of a lottery and bringing together folks from across the country, just regular folks, to think about online hate as well. What everybody, the unanimity across all viewpoints and even you know we've seen polls that show even across political the political spectrum everyone agrees that regulation is needed you know that is something that you know i think is is really quite important to highlight what that regulation looks like of course is where the rubber meets the road and certainly the the issue of free speech is often brought up as like the the main concern that people have and absolutely you know i think everyone agrees that freedom of speech is fundamental to democracy. But what we did over the course of about a year was hear from experts, whether it was from law enforcement, whether it was from experts who've been looking at these platforms, trying to understand the, their algorithms, experts who have sort of seen the political landscape, even out of the United States, how hate has been used and misused and how we've seen the narratives being pushed out into communities and Basically, after all of these discussions and thinking of all the different types of policy responses, we came up with six recommendations that were made and, and, and sent to the federal government. And so I can go through and quickly do a quick rundown of those recommendations, but I do encourage people to read the report because it would take me all day to, to get into <laughs> it. And, and there's critiques to this. And it's interesting because I actually... I was on the commission, but I'm also a board member of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Some of the recommendations from the commission report, the network is not in agreement with. So I've I've kind of seen both sides of the, the arguments. Well, pause pause there because yeah. I'm curious then, the, the six recommendations, as you say, there's a legislative duty on platforms to act responsibly, a new regulator to oversee that duty, 
a social media standards council, which I, I think it should have happened years ago, frankly, a oh, transparency yeah. regime around ads and information. And I think to get at that idea of algorithmic transparency, an e-tribunal to facilitate and expedite dispute resolution, and then mechanism to quickly remove content that presents imminent threats. So, okay, there, there are six. The anti-hate network, walk me through where they would want to go further and where they might disagree. Yeah, it's the takedown, because at the moment we, we see jurisdictions like in Germany, if the platforms do not remove hate within 24 hours, there are significant fines. And so the commission did not go that route. Give me an example, uh, someone within our, our team at the network, their family was being targeted online. And it was very difficult to get that meet social media off, off the platform, that particular platform. It took a lot of work and advocacy to get that piece of hate off the platform, like weeks worth. And that's for people who know, who know who to call and who to do. And we had to actually get a legal intervention to get this, this hate off the platform. So we managed to get the idea that okay, there should be a mechanism, quickly remove uh, you know, anything that's threatening to someone off the platform. That's a recommendation in the commission report, but there's no fine if the social media platforms don't do it, right? So again, it's that duty to act responsibly. There are those like in, within the network and the coalition that they've said, that's not good enough. We can't expect these social media platforms to act responsibly because they have a commercial imperative. But the concern becomes if you have these fines, they may just take down content that is not threatening anyone. And so, for instance, that occurred after what happened in Myanmar and in, in Burma, where by all accounts, the genocide there that was occurring was, you know, people have said it was fueled by Facebook. And the hate that was that was on that platform and Facebook really um, had to account for that. And so the flip side is what it started to do was remove any mention of Rohingya people, even when it was people advocating for their human rights. It was being taken down because of the over, you know, I guess the over censoring of anything that could potentially be hateful. And so people will point to that. And and that was sort of the, the tension within our commission of like, OK, we don't want to over step and potentially remove information. And so that's the crux of the balancing act. Some would say rather err on the side of protecting people versus on the side of potentially removing too much content, but later being able, if we have an e-tribunal, to reinstate that content. So it's not that it will be removed forever. If it truly wasn't threatening or harmful or, or hateful, there will be a mechanism to get that speech back up. So it's not removed forever. It's interesting because in the last parliament, I sat on the Privacy and Ethics Committee and we did a deep dive into privacy rules, but then we did a deep dive into Cambridge Analytica and that then took us to electoral integrity issues, but also to issues of misinformation and disinformation online. And we did recommend a version of the German law. And rather than this imminent threat being the reason for takedown, we suggested that where it was manifestly illegal, so that it had to be a bright line insofar as it couldn't be a gray area, there couldn't be a debate about it. Is this illegal? Is this not illegal? It had to be clearly illegal. and But then there would be an immediate takedown requirement. And I don't know if that strikes the right balance as far as it goes, but it, it is a complicated conversation insofar as if you don't have the e-tribunal, it, it's, a, it's a nightmare scenario because you're devolving this public set of rules and this this public framework of what's right and what's wrong, we're devolving decision-making entirely to private sector. And they will obviously 
in their own commercial interests. If if they're going to get a bad news story, okay, well they're just going to take over. They're going to take down more content than otherwise necessary. As soon as you have the e-tribunal system, it does soften the, the the concerns, at least as you say, where if there is content that is taken down that shouldn't have been taken down, it could be restored. Now, whether one's going to fight through that process to restore content is a whole other question, but it, it does at least put a public process in place to ensure not only accountability, but also to ensure that there's a jurisprudence and that the right decisions are ultimately made. The problem with online hate, though, is that it's not always clear what is illegal. That is the problem. And what we've heard from, I think it was Arif Farani, who has been obviously amongst the you know, leading on the, the issue uh, of online hate, was that there will be a new statutory definition of hate based on the 11 hallmarks, which came up from the Canadian Human Rights Commission and which was also sort of reinforced by a Supreme Court decision, which really outlines what are the hallmarks of hate speech. I was just passing that on to someone yesterday who was saying, tell me how we identify hate. How do I know that something is not just mean <laughs> versus, you know, this is hate speech and potentially illegal. So that's hopeful as well, because the clarity is so important. And one of the biggest challenges, the real practical challenge, and, and I've experienced this myself, is for instance, I remember we we had a, a workshop happening looking at Islamophobia, and we, we advertised it on Facebook. And we had someone making threats against the event saying, oh, you better not come here. You better not come to this whatever area of town. And uh, if you do watch out, and so we reported that to police. So, well, there's nothing we can do about it. This is several years ago, I should I should add. There has been, you know, maybe they would do something now. I'm not sure. But there's nothing you can do. And so it just becomes a bit of a black hole for people who are concerned or worried. And even with someone, you know, I won't even use his name, but there's, there's, there's a sort of a provocateur, a really hateful person in Toronto who spreads online hate all the time. And it was very difficult. I, I sat in on meetings with, with the police to talk about some of the content he was putting out. And the police were literally throwing up their hands and saying, we really have trouble pinning someone like this down because it's just unclear how we're going to prosecute him. And then lawyers will say, no, there is a, there is a path. There is a path, but the police services themselves are really unsure of how to bring charges against people who are advancing online hate. So there is a real, there's a real kind of area of work that still needs to be done and guidance that law enforcement needs in order to help kind of close the circle on the platforms and then, and then consequences for individuals who are advancing this type of speech. On that latter point, you actually have written previously, I was quite interested in it. You said not only must lawmakers urgently introduce new laws to govern online spaces, but there must be a plan to hold individuals accountable. And it's that latter piece that I think has been under addressed in this national conversation to date. We have rightly focused on platforms and said, what is your responsibility? I have some questions about a general duty on platforms to act responsibly. I don't entirely know what that means. Kicking it over to something like the CRC does give me some concerns unless we delineate it in clearer terms as parliament. But at a minimum, we say existing illegal content needs to be taken down within a reasonable time in a timely way. And there's got to be a clear public process through an e-tribunal. That all makes sense to me. Where I still have some open questions is around what the penalties look like, but also what are the penalties for the individual actors who are spreading this hate in the first place? Because I don't think we've arrived at a set of solutions that are useful in the online world in which we live, where it can be so easy to spread a hateful comment, to write something that would qualify as criminal harassment. It's not so easy to get at that individual as far as accountability. If we're just going to have to go through a criminal process each time for each comment online, 
We're not going to have effective enforcement. This kind of brings us to Section 13. A, A potential option was to bring back Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act. Because, and again, this is where there was the division between sort of what, you know, the commissioners came up with and what the Canadian Anti-Hate Network says, because the Canadian Anti-Hate Network believes that we need Section 13 again within the Canadian Human Rights Act, which, as if as you recall, it was the Harper government that removed it, even though the Supreme Court of Canada upheld it as not being, you know, unconstitutional, that it was not shutting down speech, and it was a legitimate way to hold people accountable for uh, the dissemination of hate through fines. People like Richard Warman, who is a very well-known human rights lawyer, who's also on the board of the Anti-Hate Network, you know, he went after neo-Nazis like nobody's business, and he was able to shut them down through Section 13. That was a very effective mechanism available. Now, the Canadian Human Rights Commission is not adequately resourced to be able now to handle, and that was because that was years ago. And now with the volume of content, you'd really have to fund the commission very, very well in order to be able for it to address online hate. But that was an example of a mechanism that allowed regular people to hold people accountable for what, what they were sending out. And that's no longer an option. So you're right. The criminal threshold makes it very difficult to get people to stop, get people to stop, to be fined, to to be prevented from continuing to spread this hatred. And it was generally more effective than, as I said, now we're in this wild west. More effective than the criminal law. Still, it was a $10,000 fine to my recollection at the maximum. And so there obviously then do need to be significant due process mechanisms in place. I also wonder, but I'm not even certain with the human rights complaints processes, sometimes they they don't act quickly enough to dismiss frivolous claims. We want both a really stringent focus on let's administratively simplify the process so we can tackle hate as quickly as possible. But let's also, when there are frivolous claims to silence people, let's shut those down just as quickly so that we, we maintain trust in the overall system. Absolutely. Like there is, there is no silver bullet. While it may be a sort of a good argument for the federal government to say, well, good that we've taken our time with this because we can examine other jurisdictions and see what is working and what isn't working, which is valid. At the end of the day, the recommendations have been made by, you know, groups, all of these different groups have been provided. There have been endless consultations. My understanding is that the legislation, you know, may be tabled very, very soon. It has to, because the concern is that every, every day that goes by that there isn't some work on this, it impacts on the freedom of speech of the, the targeted communities, the racialized communities, and that's what I wrote about as well. It's that is, whose free speech are we worried about anyway? Is it the free speech of those who want to spew hatred, which is like the lowest form of speech? Or is it the free speech of those communities that are targeted and who are driven off these platforms because of the abuse? You know, I wrote about this one woman who was completely just abused online and she couldn't continue. And it was Carla Beauvais, I believe it was. And she was now part of this campaign called Block Hate being run by the YWCA and the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. And it's really to show that, like, if we don't take action, there's a whole swath of, of people out there who can no longer express themselves anymore and don't feel safe online. And on the flip side, there's all these folks that are sharing 
dehumanizing, hateful content that is exacerbating division in our country and may or may not have led to what happened in London, but certainly have, has helped to create a very dangerous climate generally for minority communities. My advice in relation to the online harms and online safety legislation was to say we should include criminal harassment in the measures we want to address. And the second piece being, and we've touched on it previously, just about the algorithmic transparency that I want you as a, as a researcher and writer and someone who cares in this space, I want you to be able to be connected with, with Facebook data and you analyze it and, and you'll be able to report on it. Academic researchers and those in the space, there needs to be an open and transparent process to ensure that you can scrutinize. Smart, experienced people can yeah. scrutinize this information on our behalf and make sure that we aren't amplifying hate through these, these platforms, that they, they do have a responsibility. And if they are amplifying hate, then there's public transparency and public reporting and then potentially penalties if it continues. You also, though, say there's no silver bullet. And, and by the way, the Supreme Court case is even you know, like five, four decisions. And, and this is contentious, even at the highest levels with, with incredibly yeah. brilliant academics and, and jurists. And when we say there's no silver bullet, it does occur to me online hate and these conversations around takedown and addressing this content, they're very important and we need to act. I think no question. But it also occurs to me, I was sitting with my four-year-old son. And I was attending virtually this peacemaker initiative with BCS and my son steals my, my headset and is listening to it. He doesn't understand all that they're talking about. So he starts asking questions and I'm trying to explain hate and racism to him. And the simplest thing I can do is say, well, you know, your really good friend, Subtarshi in your class. And he goes, yeah, I love Subtarshi. It's like, yeah, should he be treated differently because he looks different? And like the, the outrage on my kid's face, no, no. And, and it does come down to education, right? And in the end, this notion of education, you wrote about this in your star article, and there was a list of things to tackle, but that's the one when I read, we need that tomorrow. We need our teachers, the staff, the, the students, they just need to grow up and to unlearn whatever hate they're learning from their parents or loved ones. I'm not the only one. Many, many people have been talking about, obviously, the importance of education and embedding anti-racism, anti-oppression training in all of our curriculum and for staff and teachers. You know, and I even suggested, you know, even forget how to reach parent councils, right? And and how do you, you know, educate the whole communities around some of these issues? You know, I'll give you an example. Um, when I was at the National Council of Canadian Muslims, we piloted uh, workshops on Islamophobia for educators. And before Quebec City happened, there was very little interest. You know, we weren't getting a lot of interest from school boards to deliver this uh, training, this, this education. And then sadly, you know, it takes a massacre for people to say, oh, wow, something's going on here. Maybe we should look into Islamophobia, but it, it's it's heartbreaking that it takes a massacre for people to understand, because the reality is, is that hate is on a continuum and the continuum is such that mass murder and, and violence and genocide is like the extreme end of that spectrum. And we don't want to wait in society until people are dead on our streets because of the hate. We want to get it early. The word microaggressions, I really don't like it because it's just racism on a quote unquote smaller scale. But, you know, we want to get it early. We want to get it when it appears in our workplaces, through attitudes, through biases, through hiring biases, through um, lack of promotion, the wage gap between men, white men and, and white women and, and then between racialized women and, and then indigenous women. Like we want to get it in all of these systemic ways 
because these are all value judgments in society of who's valuable and who's not. And so when we are tackling these issues, absolutely within our education system, it's important, but it's really even in our human resources policies, it's all around us. Like we could be addressing these issues all around us um, in so many different ways, in so many different spaces, especially as Canada is is really a very diverse country. Like we need immigration. We have people from all over the world here who have set down their roots, who have, you know, children and grandchildren now who are who are productively interacting in this country. And yet we're holding people back from their full potential. We are limiting people. And while it's not state sanctioned in the way that it is in Quebec right now with Bill 21, and that's a whole other kettle of fish that is deeply problematic, as as people know. But there are ways that that's happening tacitly as well in the broader Canadian public. And so all of this through education, not just in the formal school system, but again, even in our own spaces at work, in all the institutions that we interact with, all of that really needs to be taken much more seriously than it has been to date. Well, you mentioned Bill 21, and then you mentioned that our country needs immigration, but the Premier of Quebec has recently said that he believes Quebec has already reached its capacity to integrate immigrants. I read Justin Trudeau's speech in 2015 at McGill where he was defending religious liberty. He said, you can dislike the niqab, you can hold it up as a symbol of oppression, you can try to convince your fellow citizens that it is a choice they ought not to make. This is a free country, those are your rights. But those who would use the state's power to restrict women's religious freedom and freedom of expression indulge the very same repressive impulse that they profess to condemn. He could have been speaking about Bill 21. And we heard really, I think, a powerful argument, actually, one of the best speeches he's ever given in response to really nasty proposals from the conservatives in 2015 in that election. We don't hear enough criticism and pushback in relation to Bill 21. At the federal level, we can't overturn that law in in quite the same way. The disallowance power hasn't been used for decades, but we could intervene at a minimum in the court case and say, we support religious liberty. This is an offensive law. This is an unconstitutional law. The only way they're able to proceed with this law is because of notwithstanding clause. And we stand for equality and we stand for human rights and we stand for the charter. At a minimum, it seems like that's what we should do. I wonder what you think about how the federal government has responded and ought to respond. I've been very clear, as as many you know human rights advocates from religious minority communities have been clear, is that Bill 21 is a racist, discriminatory law. It sets up second-class citizenship. It is an affront to our rights and freedoms in our charter. It is completely contrary to the democratic values that all of us should not only cherish, but should uphold. And so for any federal leader, you cannot say that you don't like it and yet fail to fully condemn it for its attack on the rights and freedoms of Canadian citizens in this country. It is a complete attack. It should not be allowed to stand, you know, looking forward to the court challenge, but our federal leaders should not shy away from calling it what it is because it is the tyranny of the majority in that province right now. And the saddest thing to me, and it comes back to education, is that it's not necessarily about just condemning them and suggesting that people are racist because they support this racist law. It was about the education that needed to happen. It was about explaining what is the charter. You know, I've given workshops, countless workshops, and I'm always shocked at how little 
students know about our charter, how little they know about the rights and freedoms that all of us deserve to enjoy in this country. And so where was that education? Where was that work to win the hearts and minds of Quebecers to explain to them the impact of this law on people's lives and livelihoods and their ability to, to support the society where, for instance, they had a teacher shortage two years ago. And the irony of that, when you have all of these teachers who some who've had to leave the province because they cannot be true to who they are, their identities, which and anybody else has the right to. I think it's a blot on our on our society. It's a blot on our federal leaders that this is this bill is not being more, more fully condemned. And I really I really do say that it, it was really a sad day when it was brought into legislation. And I look forward to the day that it's defeated. I wonder if just as a number of political leaders are looking back at some of the comments they've made around M one hundred three and otherwise say, well, we shouldn't have we shouldn't have said those things. If we'll look back years from now at Bill 21 and say, well, we should have said more. And I hope we say more in the interim. So Amira, thanks for your time. Thanks for everything you're doing. And by the way, as the legislation is tabled and as other issues arise that you think the federal government ought to weigh in to address hate and to build out anti-racism initiatives, please be in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Nathaniel, for this program and for all of your efforts to address some of these issues and get at them deeper. It's certainly refreshing not to have to like bottle my responses into seven minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. And thanks, of course, to Amira for her time and advocacy. One last thought on this subject of online hate, but there are really two considerations at play. First is the definition of hate speech, and in Canada we have long had, for over 50 years, a definition in our criminal code, the courts have applied it narrowly, and it is a very high bar, and that is as it should be. The second consideration is one of enforcement, and it's not clear to me that we've landed on the right solution yet. The criminal code certainly has been a poor tool to address the scale of the challenge online, And we continue to need legislation that will hold large platforms accountable and to bring greater algorithmic transparency to better understand how these challenges are both created and solved. Bill C-36 does not engage that kind of accountability. It does, though, engage this idea of the need for greater accountability for individuals who post hate speech. The civil remedy proposed through the Canadian Human Rights Act and C-36 is one option, and it ensures that third parties can bring the accused who are engaging in this kind of speech before the Human Rights Tribunal, and the tribunal can levy significant fines if one is found to be guilty. But it also potentially opens the door to individual litigants bringing cases without an adequate gatekeeping function. In some ways, we want the speed and flexibility of that kind of civil remedy, perhaps with more public gatekeeping such that the tool cannot be abused. Much more debate to come, I'm certainly thinking my way through these challenges. And if you have thoughts on the way forward, I'm certainly interested in hearing from you. Info at beynate.ca is best. The debate in Parliament will have to wait, of course, as we've now risen for the summer, but this podcast will continue. I just recorded an episode with Hassan Youssef, former CLC president and newly minted senator, to discuss the idea of a just transition. I'm speaking to Leonid Volkov, Russian politician and chief of staff to Alexei Navalny, and to Mayor Kennedy Stewart to discuss decriminalization in Vancouver. If you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do reach out. Leave a positive review on your platform of choice if you happen to like what we're doing. And otherwise, until next time.